This morning you can turn in your bulletins to find the scripture that we're going to consider. Page 9. Make it a little easier turning from one to the other. First, toward the end of his letter to the Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Titus 3. Remind them, he's speaking to Titus, who is the pastor. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The rest from First Peter. This passage comes directly after the passage in verses 9 and 10 that say that he's brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we may proclaim his uh, excellence. And so in that context, beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And in this passage has the pretty famous passage about answering those who ask for the hope within you, but I want you to see the whole context and how it's just wrapped up in how you live as a believer. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Then he quotes from the psalm. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But realize what he's talking about there. Those who do evil against unbelievers who've done evil to them. Okay, That's the context. Don't revile when you're reviled. Don't, uh, in, in the contrary... Contrary to that, you bless in the midst of evil being done to you. Because the psalmist says, if you want to live, love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil. We don't read that psalm very often in terms of how you are to live before unbelievers. But that's the context that Peter quotes it in. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would equip us and nourish us and sustain us, Lord, as your people, that we may indeed be salt and light in this dark world. For your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Certainly when you get to the topic of evangelism, it makes us squirm probably as much as any other topic. It's what makes us most uncomfortable, and for most of us, it's probably what we're most guilty about. And so, certainly not here to lay the guilt on thick. Um, I, I'm here primarily to encourage you and to encourage you in what I think are the central issues in evangelism and the central things that the writers of the New Testament talk about when they're writing letters to believers about this very thing. And you catch uh, the flavor of it in these passages. The first thing I want to point out is that we are to be an aroma of Christ, an aroma of the gospel. We're the aroma of Christ, the aroma of the gospel. It's interesting that uh, here in 1 Peter, even those, he says, who are speaking evil against you, you continue to do good, that that speaking evil would eventually be turned around. And far from speaking evil against you, they may even come to glorify God because of the goodness of your life, because of the love and kindness and grace of your life. Women are told in 1 Peter 3, who are married to unbelievers, that they live in a way before their husbands, showing godly character so that they might win their husbands without a word. Obviously, the point there is not you need to batter him with the gospel day in and day out. Never get, let him get away. I mean, he's a captive audience, you know. What, how can he get away from you? No, no, don't. Live in a way that wins him over. And Peter lays that out and says, here's the possibility that you might be used uh, to draw them to Christ. It's interesting in Titus chapter 2, as he speaks to older men and older women and younger women and younger men, he has in there, uh, right after speaking to the younger women, giving each of them exhortation in terms of their character. But after speaking that way to the younger women, he says, that the word of God may not be reviled. See this constant concern for how it looks to the world, right? How they regard us so that 
they may that the word may not be reviled. And later, when he's uh, speaking to uh, the young men, he said to Titus himself, uh, talking about his character, he says, "So that an opponent opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us." That's yes to please God, but there's this constant concern that how you live. That, that the way you live is going to affect people. So we don't want them to have to be able to say anything evil about us. We don't want the word reviled. And then in a positive sense, as he speaks to slaves, he says that in everything you slaves may adorn the doctrine of God our Father. And we've talked about this before, but that just seems crazy to me, you know, that I'm going to be the close of the gospel. You know, I'm going to be the attraction of the gospel. God's going to put me out there to uh, draw others to the gospel. I, we, he says, are the aroma of the gospel. We're what draws people to the gospel. We're the curbside appeal for the gospel. It used to be years ago... Now, Toys R Us, you, there's no window to look in. But used to, in Main Street, you walk down and you look in the window to see all the toys and that. Well, we're the toys, okay, of the kids of the world looking in and seeing in the window and saying, I want to go in there. I want to get some of that, of what you've got, what you're showing me in your window. God puts us in the window to draw people to himself. So we're his advertisement. Exhibit A, the live demonstration of how this works. And so the constant concern of the writers. Jesus himself, right, in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He, see, he puts that before them as the primary way <laughs> that this is going to happen is that your life will make known the reality of the grace of God. He says, Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4.12, for them to work diligently and to mind their own business, that is, not to be nosy and, you know, not, not that they're not to care for people, but mind your own business so that you will live properly before outsiders. See that concern? And even this... The leaders, the elders, must be well thought of by outsiders, the elders. That that is important, right? That is critical for the church. How do we make ourselves known to outsiders? How do we look to outsiders? How are we loving outsiders? How are we caring for outsiders? And so in this passage that we read in Colossians 4, we're to walk in great wisdom toward outsiders. And what is that wisdom? To be gracious. The, the word salt here has that idea of making something taste good, attractive, gracious, encouraging, you know, draws you in. You, you taste this food and you want another bite because it's nicely salted. It's nicely seasoned. And so he says, your life is to be that nicely seasoned thing that draws people to it. It tastes good when they're around you. They're attracted to that. Even though they may be offended by the message. 
And in our day, it's especially important when there are so many messages and where truth is not regarded as even being there anymore in our postmodern world. And authority is not regarded in any way. And all the structures that we've known for so long are falling to pieces. All the more important that people have relationship with God's people to see lived out the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. To see the love of Christ that has transformed us and made us something like our Savior who gave himself sacrificially uh, for his people. And that we are exhibiting this sacrificial love to our neighbors. And so you can see this concern that every single person be regarded with respect and honor. That you know how to speak to every single person, not quarreling with them, not and, and being gentle with them. Interesting that Paul, when he's talking about those who are opposing doctrine in 2 Timothy 2, says this to Timothy, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. But notice the means that God would grant them repentance. Not only that he would be speaking the truth and relating that to them, but how he does it, right? That his very life, the very way he communicates and honors and is gracious toward them in even talking about these things. And and these people were uh, battering the church with false doctrine. You'd think you'd just want to, I'm going to give you one, you know, just because of what you're saying that's so false about Christ and God. And you're spreading this around and it's hurting people's lives. And I'm going to take you out. You know, that seems to be our attitude. We, we uh, so easily, at least the history of American Christianity in the last couple of decades, has been that we will uh, quickly take stands without any grace whatsoever. We'll be sarcastic. We'll be abusive in our speech. We'll call people names just because they're on the other side of the aisle. That's just politically we'll do that. But then we'll do it religiously as well. Think it's free reign to say anything about anybody. Like the sign that says, God hates fags. Okay? That's a really, really good one, right? To convey the fact that God has given his son for sinners and calls every sinner no matter who they are. Let's have a sign right next to it that says, God hates blasphemy because whoever is doing this is not living out the name of God, and that's blasphemy. Or God hates gossips. Or God hates people who are greedy. Let's just line them all up. Let's, lay, let's have every one of our sins with placards and just walk in that way. That's just one obvious example. But we are called to convey the sacrificial 
love of Jesus Christ for sinners. And there in First Peter, it's interesting when he says the, the part we mainly focus on in First Peter 3.15, which is uh, that we should always be prepared to make a defense. The main verb of that uh, passage is not that, but it's this, honor Christ as holy in your heart. Or some translations have sanctify Christ uh, in your heart. And this would mean that you give Christ the ultimate place in your life and everything that he stands for, you stand for, and you want to convey everything that Christ is to others. That's the whole point of that, honoring Christ as, as everything in your life so that you imitate him and manifest him completely in your life. And so you're prepared to make a defense But this is done because you have an honor and love for Christ and you mainly want to make your defense so that Christ is made known to them, the very love of Christ. And that's why he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect as you speak to them. Having a good conscience so that even when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Jerem Bars in his book, uh, The Heart of Evangelism, says, If I have a passion, it is that we Christians will learn to see the glory and honor of the unbelieving men and women around us and will delight in getting to know them and building friendships with them. How about that? The glory and honor. He takes this from Psalm 8, that they are made in the image of God and have been given glory and honor because they're the image of God. Is that how we regard unbelievers? I love what uh, Shane Wheeler, PCA pastor in Decatur, uh, says that we're to see them as uh, beautiful because they're made in the image of God. We're to see them as those people that we're passionate about, that we uh, love, that we give ourselves over to, that we pray for with agonizing tears like Jesus prayed for Jerusalem that rejected him. That we would rejoice over their salvation like Jesus says he does, like the father does, running down the road. Can't believe that his son is back and he embraces him. This is a love for sinners, right? It's a love for sinners. We can't get them off our hearts. We we can't leave them alone because we want to care for them. We want to be like Christ who cried out for forgiveness for those who crucified him and mocked him. So you might ask, well, what would it... Even our enemies, right? Even our enemies in Luke 6, 27 and 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And so by God's grace, as we believe the gospel, believe that we are sinners and believe in the forgiveness that God 
has given us and rest in that and then rest in his goodness that he attends us and supports us and and uh, enables us to live out his life and he will he will help us in our weakness and he will help us in our fear he will help us in the fact that we don't know what we're doing when we try to mix it up with unbelievers that he's going to be with us in all of that you see believing the gospel is believing not only in his forgiveness, but believing in his commitment to support and enable you to obey him in all of your trash and all of your weakness and helplessness. It's not to hang back and say, well, I just can't, I just won't. But to move forward with boldness and courage because in your helplessness, what can you do but say, Lord, I, I want to follow you. I want to be like you. I want to manifest you. I want to love others. And so this aroma of the gospel centers on this one thing that we will simply love people around us. We will love the unlovely around us. We will find ways to spend ourselves for those around us. And... There's much that we could say about that. But a second thing, and this may seem obvious, uh, if, if uh, I'll start with an illustration. If you've got a pie store, okay, and let's say you're in a village or something like this where there's access in and out and you've got clim- uh, uh, weather that allows this kind of thing, you're not, you shouldn't put your pie store or your, your pies in the basement so nobody can smell them, right? If you really want to sell some pies, you're going to set them out on the window, right? People walking by, you know, just minding their own business and, whoa, you know, just drawn in because of the aroma of those pies. So the point is that we're an aroma, right? We've got to, the aroma's got to get in their noses, okay? The aroma's got to get in people's noses, And that's why believers have got to mix it up with unbelievers a lot, constantly. Being now, there is certainly the warnings against hanging out with people of bad morals because you're going to be like them in Proverbs, etc. But the idea there is a compromising attitude to leave the truth and to leave righteousness in order to conform to others. Kind of a welcoming of that into your life. And of course, there is risk always in being friends with unbelievers in that regard. But if we follow Christ, we must do even as he did. The Pharisees asked the disciples in Matthew 9, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? And you remember Jesus' answer. He says, well, he <laughs> almost like, duh, you know. I didn't come to, the physician doesn't come to the well people. He comes to the sick people. That, I mean, what? We, we, we're here for the sick people. We, we've got to get with the sick people. We've got to talk with them. We've got to befriend them. We've got to serve them. We've got to be with them. And, and when Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine, he says, when you have a lamp, you don't put it under a, a basket. You put it up where everybody can see it. He says, 
specifically, let your light so shine before men. That means you must be engaging. I must be engaging with unbelievers. That they may see us, that they may see how we love, that they may that catch the aroma. And Jesus said to those Pharisees, you need to go figure out what this means. He quoted the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I would say, God would say that to us and say, no, if you're faithful in worship, there every Sunday, come to all the meetings of the church, and you have no contact, no desire to reach out, nothing with unbelievers, you need to go figure out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go figure that one out. Now, does he not want sacrifice? He doesn't want merciless sacrifice, right? He don't want people that are not merciful so that they are pouring themselves out for those around them and serving their neighbor. He doesn't want that sacrifice. To him, that's not sacrifice. That's not worship. Go figure this out. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus was accused too. Matthew eleven nineteen. it was being said around, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, that may happen. (laughs) That could happen. But that didn't stop Jesus. It's interesting that people will take shots at you within the church because they need to justify themselves that they're not evangelizing. And people outside the church will take their shots because they want to justify themselves and turn you into a hypocrite, (laughs) you know. But we have to be in the world and not simply in the church, to be with non-Christians and not simply with fellow believers. It's interesting, Jesus' parables of the lost sheep and coin, coin, that's still hard for me to say, um, but these parables were told there in Luke 15 in the context of, again, Pharisees complaining about him eating with sinners, okay? So he tells this story about a lost sheep and the shepherd going to find the one lost sheep among the uh, 99. And then this woman having a lost coin and she dropped everything to find that lost coin. This is what's interesting. Jesus is making the point that my being here with sinners is my going for the lost sheep and the lost coin. Right? So we are either with Jesus in seeking to mix it up and make known the love of Christ to sinners, or we're standing here with the Pharisees. That, that's, how else can we read that? And the Pharisees acted that way because they had no love for the lost. You see, we have to be careful to, to ask, am I just... Darwin, are you just eaten up with self-righteousness? Do you think you're better than all these people? Do you think you shouldn't be their servant? Uh, what, what is the deal here? That you would not care for your neighbor. That you would not have them in your home. That you wouldn't get to know them. That you wouldn't find out. 
and there's nobody here that needs this more than me. Nobody. I should have given the manuscript to somebody and let them read it so I could sit and hear it. So I'm, I'm certainly preaching to myself <clears throat> as well. As Shane Wheeler says, Christians have built an immense gulf between their own lives and the lives of everyone else. Jesus' example with the Samaritan woman is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, she was in the wrong race because she was a mixed race. Uh, the history of their people, they're part Jew, part uh, pagan. And so the Jews put them below what you might say a pure Gentile. They despised them even worse than Gentiles. And then secondly, they had a blended, not only blended race, but a blended religion. It's kind of features from Judaism, but features from paganism. Again, the Jews thought that this was worse than plain paganism. <laughs> they hated them, worse than, than Gentiles and pagans. You would generally go around Samaria because you just didn't want to go through there. In fact, it was said that if you meet one of them on the road, you want to walk in the ditch so that your shadows won't touch. Now, that was a Samaritan. And she was a woman. Here's the, you've heard this before, the great prayer of the Jewish man. Thank you, God, that I'm not a, that I'm not a Gentile, but a Jew. Thank you that I'm not a slave, but a free man. And thank you that I'm not a woman, but a man. Right? That was just the Jewish attitude toward women. And here's this woman, married five times, divorced five times. Easy for a man in that culture to divorce a woman. And it's always assumed that she is in the wrong, the one divorced. And she would be, therefore, despised by everybody. And regarded basically like a prostitute. The lowliest of women, most likely why she was coming to the well in the middle of the day when you don't normally come. Nobody else was around. She was not only unacceptable to Jews, but to her own people. And you weren't supposed to drink after a Samaritan or eat from a vessel that they had eaten out of or drank from either. And Jesus to this Samaritan woman at the well, says, would you, would you give me a drink? Whoa. <laughs> Cross every single barrier that, were, that was erected, threw it all out the door, made himself vulnerable, opened his need up to the woman, this woman, and exalted her in that respect. You're someone of dignity. You're someone of worth. You're someone that even could meet my need right now. I need some water. Thus the conversation began. And that's, that's what we need to be. That's what we, how we need to love. That's how we need to move out and regard other people. Anybody. And for us, there's even a greater thing like what is said here in Titus 3. We, we don't have the rest of it in your bulletin, but he says, why do, we, why do we show this perfect courtesy toward all people? Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, etc. <laughs> we, we were everything bad there could be. Who do you think you are? You know, 
We're just lost people who've been found by the grace of God. And there's no reason why we should be found. It's just His grace. And so all the more should we show perfect love and consideration for every human being. They're made in God's image. They are lost like we were lost. Jesus loved them when He was on earth and loves them from heaven and offers Himself to them. And we are to manifest that as the body of Christ in love. Uh, Shane Wheeler talks about this, not only that we are to get the aroma into their noses. He doesn't use this this, uh, analogy. But we need to provide an atmosphere in our church where they could be among us as well. An atmosphere of welcome, an atmosphere of humility and brokenness, an atmosphere where they don't catch the edge of, oh, got a tattoo, you know. Or what if, um, as happens in his church pretty regularly because they live in an area that is about one-third homosexual, what do you do if a couple comes in, same-sex, with two children? What are you going to do if that happens? Or a couple that's living together. And everybody knows they're living together. How do you regard them? How do you love them? How do you care for them? Can we provide a place where we don't approve of what's going on, but we love people passionately? That we sacrifice for them? So... He speaks of a fella that joined their music team and eventually he was for a long time uh, resistant to the gospel. And that was part of what they did is they allowed men to, people to do that. But um, eventually he came to know Christ. And Shane Wheeler says this, As I watched Brian find his place in our midst, I realized something interesting. No one had tried to witness to him in any formalized, programmatic way. We had made room for him, not just in the pew, but in our lives. He had observed that Jesus does more than just change our religious habits. He shapes the entire story of our lives, and that's what made the difference. He was around these people whose whole lives had been shaped by the story of the gospel. And they just let him live among them with all of his rejection of the gospel for months. Just loved on him, had him in their homes, discussed the things of God with him. He said, even more important, he identified with our community of faith before he identified with Jesus. Vital to our responsibility in helping people find their identity in Christ is to make room for them among us. He's not talking about membership here. He's just saying making room for them among us. This is not an easy thing to do and may require that we abandon many of our assumptions and change a great number of our habits. It means we will always have people in our churches and in our closest relationships who don't believe in God. They have questions, good questions, hard questions that we cannot be afraid of even if we can't always answer them. Our friends must feel the freedom to doubt and rant and come and go as they please as they work out their place in our communities of faith as ones who likely do not share the faith. The community is vital. 
Connection to a believing community most often happens before any understanding of the gospel or its implications for one's life, before any commitment to following Christ. And so he says, his church is all souls. He says, this is why at our church we say, all souls is a place where you can belong before you believe. It's a place where you can belong before you believe. And you know what I'm saying by belong. It's not membership, but belonging. We want you here. We love you. You're a fellow human being. You're, you've got gifts and abilities and all of these things, and we're interested in you. We're interested in your story, and we want to share our story with you. We want to share our lives with you. We want to serve you. And he says later, Why are we so afraid to simply love people the way they are, tell them about the affection that God has for them in Jesus, and welcome them into our imperfect lives? So this, I think, is a a huge, constant challenge to us, not only to manifest the aroma, but to get the aroma in people's noses, both in how we move out into people's lives as God has given us opportunity through work and community and school, and in making this place a place that could become known as, you know what, sinners... Anybody, anywhere can come and they will love on you. You don't even have to believe what they believe for them to start loving on you and care for you. You can belong there. Even if you don't believe what they believe, you can be a part of the things that they do and participate in their fellowship. And That would be an amazing thing. What if hundreds of people eventually could come to know Christ because they were first just welcome? to be a part of our imperfect lives in Christ. The last few things I want to say, just because I think I need to say something about uh, the content part, uh, even though we're winding it down here time-wise. First, as you're, if and when you get to talk to people, and we, what we envision and what the New Testament envisions is that you have an ongoing relationship with someone that, in which you can have repeated conversations about the things of God. It's not this do or die one time, go for it and bam, it's over and I'll never see you again kind of thing. No, it's in the context of a relationship of love that you continue to care for them and y'all talk about this thing or that thing or whatever they bring up. Notice in both contexts in First Peter uh, and uh, earlier in the... Uh, not the Colossians passage, but the uh, in your bulletin. <laughs> I just lost my head. The Titus passage it says, uh, it, well, in the Colossians passage, so that you might know how to answer each person. So there's this idea in relationship that people are asking you. They're inquiring. They're wondering about things. And so you're never in the position where you're making somebody listen to something that they don't want to listen to. That's usually what we all think about as evangelism. It's going to end up, I'm going to be talking to somebody and they wish I would leave. They wish I'd shut up. That's not what is supposed to happen. It's supposed to be an open relationship and people curious, people wondering, people asking questions. 
And we see from Paul's engagement with pagans in Acts that he really tries to understand what they believe. I mean, when he's speaking in Acts 17, you can see that he did his homework. He uh, quotes from a uh, invocation to Zeus written by Epimenides, excuse me, and he then quotes from a poet Eratus from Sicily. So he quotes from these people and he quotes what they say and he even says, hey, you believe this. And he's even talking about kind of common ground here. And so Paul not only knows what they believe, like William Carey when he went to India, labored so diligently to understand completely what the uh, Hinduism taught so that he could approach them wisely with the gospel. It shows respect and honor for people that you even listen to them and really find out, not to be argumentative, but to really find out, to love them enough that you care what they think and how they believe. And and even Paul, instead of initially speaking to them and, and being abrasive or making sure you understand how much I reject everything that you believe, he was looking for common ground. He began there in Acts 17 saying, Hey, I see in every way that you're religious. Okay, me too. Let's talk about that, right? You, your God say, in Him we live and move and have our being. Yeah, let me, let me tell you who I think that God really is. See, this, this respect and honor uh, for even what people believe. Paul had such a respect in the way he even spoke about these things that when uh, Gaius and uh, Aristarchus were uh, accosted and brought before the people in Ephesus, the guy, the council member, was able to come in there, the clerk of the city, and say, hey, wait a minute, these guys have not been sacrilegious, and they haven't blasphemed our goddess. And I'm thinking, I would have blasphemed her real fast, you know, I'm sure. But he didn't. He spoke in such a way, such a respectful way in how they believed that they couldn't bring that accusation against him. But you see, this is just an extension of the way. It's not that we believe what they believe or agree with them, but we treat them with dignity and honor and respect in the way we speak to them and the way we talk to them about what they believe. And so, as Shane Wheeler says, I could not pretend to understand them unless I learn to truly love and appreciate them in all their beauty and wonder. (laughs) But that would mean learning to see them as human beings created in the image of God with dignity and worth. Have you ever thought about the beauty and wonder of unbelievers made in the image of God? That could change our attitude a lot. And next time I'll mention just some of the things that I think we could speak in terms of kind of a beginning apologetic, a beginning outline of the glorious story that we have to tell uh, to people, how winsome it is, how amazing, how singular it is among all philosophies and religions, how we should be so uh, encouraged by the goodness of it, the richness of it, the the feasibility of it, the, the way it answers to... Uh, human psychology and human need. Oh, what a gospel we have. What a gospel we have.
And we have the privilege of being the aroma of that gospel and getting the aroma into people's noses. That's what God's called you to do. As Brian opened our, our worship by saying, this worship ultimately is about that. If you're serious about worshiping this God, you want other people to worship Him. You want them to see Him. There's not a greater joy. There's not a greater joy in seeing people embrace Jesus Christ. Broken, lost, hopeless, helpless people to come to know this rich and glorious God who's given His Son for sinners. Let us pray. Lord, we... Praise you that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we might proclaim your excellencies. Give us grace, Lord. Remove the barriers that prevent us from loving passionately those who are around us, those that we rub shoulders with, those that we live down the street from. Oh, help us, Lord, to do this with peace, with shalom, the sense of your presence, though we may be scared, though we may not know what we're doing, that we just put ourselves in your hands. We know you're with us. We know you've called us to it. And may we do it, Lord, with some sense of joy and to trust you that you are calling us to this love so that we might know your joy and that your joy, that our joy would be full and that we would have your joy. Oh, Lord, bless us for your namesake. Amen.